0: Hello everybody, Daniel Barnett from Outer Temple here and welcome to episode 69 of Employment Law Matters. Today, we're talking about the brand new restriction of public sector exit payment Regulations 2020, or Ropsepra, as the acronym will now be commonly known, and I'm joined by a person who knows much, much more about this topic than I do, employment lawyer and commentator Darren Newman. I'll say hello to Darren in just a moment. Before I do, this episode is being released on the 20th of October. We have half the population of the United Kingdom in either Tier Two or Tier Three lockdown, and very sadly, as we know many employers, both in the private and public sector, are in the midst of making redundancies. So this is a good time to talk about these brand new Restriction of Public Sector Exit Payment Regulations 2020. Darren Newman, as I say, is an employment lawyer and commentator. He hosts the Range of Reasonable Responses podcast, which is my absolute favorite employment law podcast. It's even better than this one. So I recommend everybody subscribe if they can. It it looks back, and it's seasonal. It comes out uh, for a few episodes every year or so, and it looks back at famous old employment cases and explains how they were radical at the time, even if we accept them as obvious now, and explains why the facts of the case gave rise to things that might have been a surprising decision at the time. I'll come to Darren in just a second. The new regulations aim to prevent public bodies from making excessive payments to departing employees. They cap the amount of an exit payment at £95,000. Now, that sounds like a generous enough redundancy package, but things are as ever, a little more complicated than that. Darren works closely with a variety of public sector employers, particularly local authorities. Darren, hello. What's all this about?
1: Welcome to Employment
0: Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett.
1: Thanks for having me on. It's, it's an interesting set of regulations. In a sense, it's been coming for a while because the idea of limiting the amount that a public sector employer could pay to departing employees was actually set out in the Conservative Party Manifesto of 2015. The idea was that they would ban six figure payouts to the highest paid public servants was basically what the manifesto said. And it's taken them about five years to get to the point where the regulations are coming into force. What's taken some of us by surprise is that for most of that time, they've been completely silent on the issue. And it's just since July of this year that they really seem to have rushed a set of regulations through. So over the course of the summer, we were looking at a new set of regulations that had been published. They were put through Parliament in September. And it was on the 14th of October that the minister finally made them, signed them into law. And that means that they come into force on the 4th of November. So from the 4th of November in a public sector employer or most public sector employers, it's going to be unlawful to give an employee an exit payment in excess of £95,000.
0: Does this cover every single public sector employer and employee or just most of them?
1: It covers a lot of them. It's, um, there's actually a schedule at the end of the regulations that sets out in detail exactly which public sector bodies are covered. It covers, for example, all local authorities in England and Wales, it covers government departments it covers quangos so acas is covered the equality commission is covered the british museum is covered the british library is covered i believe the commonwealth war graves is is covered i don't know how much they're normally paying out to people that they make redundant but they're going to have to cap it from the the 4th of november there are some notable omissions though schools are covered but quite a few colleges aren't universities don't seem to be covered the police are covered the s- Coverage in Scotland and Northern Ireland is a little bit more patchy because there are devolved administrations that have their own rules in place. The best thing to do if you're in the public sector is to just have a look at the schedule at the end of the regulations and see if your employer is listed there.
0: So why 95,000? Why not 99,999? I genuinely
1: think they're just picking what seems like a nice convenient number below 100,000. There's nothing magical about 100,000 because it's a six figures and what they object to is six-figure exit payments,
0: and the ninety-five thousand. What does it include? Is there anything that that lives outside that ninety-five thousand cap?
1: Well, the ninety-five thousand covers a multitude of sins. Really, it's drafted really quite widely. So, yes, it covers a redundancy payment, an ex-gratia payment. It covers a payment to pay off a fixed-term contract. It covers any other payment that might be given regarding the end of employment, including share options. Not a huge issue in the public sector, but there are some organisations where that might be relevant. Most importantly, I think for most public sector organisations, it also covers what's called pension strain. That is the amount that an employer has to pay into a pension fund to fund enhanced benefits that a redundant employee might get. And that can be a very expensive element of any um, termination package. And certainly in local government, that is by far the issue that people are concentrating on the most. There is one thing that I think anyone who read the regulations casually might miss out, and I've seen some commentators on Twitter already get this wrong, is um, whether a payment in lieu of notice is covered. Technically, a payment in lieu of notice does come within the cap, but not if it's a payment in lieu of notice for up to three months for a quarter of an annual salary. So you can have a three-month payment in lieu of notice and it's not covered, but a four-month payment in lieu of notice will be covered. Um, So sometimes you've got to watch the regulations quite carefully to figure this out.
0: Do you know what the rationale is behind that, behind the difference between a three and a four-month notice period? I think
1: at first, when the regulations were, were first published, there was a draft last year, they were criticised for including payments in lieu of notice completely. They, they, were, they were completely covered. And lots of people said, well, that's ridiculous. It's it's usually a very modest payment. So they accepted that a normal employee's payment of three months, that most would cover most employees in the public sector quite comfortably, should be excluded. But what they didn't want to do is create a back door where someone could agree, oh, I'll tell you what, we'll agree a two-year notice period for you, and then we can give you a two-year payment in lieu of notice and get around the cap. That wouldn't work.
0: I don't think too many people are going to be worried about senior executives getting shafted um, and not getting golden parachutes. But is this going to affect your typical council worker, your typical teacher?
1: Well, that's the important point, you see, particularly for local authorities. You're absolutely right that if we're talking about physically handing over cash of £95,000 to somebody, the fact that you're only giving someone £95,000 instead of one hundred and fifty is not a huge hardship for people. But it's this pension strain issue that, that's included. And I think the government has been quite disingenuous in the way it presents this to the public, because it does talk about the best paid public servants and it talks about golden parachutes. But if you take, for example, the local government pension scheme, if you're made redundant over the age of 55, you're entitled to an unreduced pension. There's no actuarial reduction made to your pension. And that's not funded as part of the pension scheme. That has to be funded by the employer paying into the pension scheme an additional amount. That amount varies, but it can very easily be a six-figure sum in its own right, right? And the local government association has been looking at this, and they found examples where a long-serving, middle-ranking social worker, for example, would certainly have a pension strain payment in excess of £95,000. So potentially, it affects them. Now, the weird thing is that these regulations don't in themselves amend the pension. So we're going to have a strange situation until the pension scheme is amended, where that social worker who gets made redundant will still be entitled to an enhanced pension. It's just the employer will be legally prevented from funding it. They won't be able to make the payment into the pension scheme that funds it. So there's going to be some clash between the pension fund that needs that pension to be funded by the employer and the employer who's not able to make the payment because it can't pay more than £95,000 in its total exit payments. The employee
0: should be OK. They'll still get their pension. And whilst it, it goes totally against the grain to ask any follow up questions <laughs> involving pensions. Um, I know, it sounds, it's horrendous, isn't it? It sounds <laughs> to me, Darren, like that's a circle that just can't be squared.
1: Yeah. Until they've changed the rules of the pension scheme. And there is a consultation out at the moment. Um, the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. Is that the right ministry? It's, it's not a very catchy title. They've got a consultation out on amending the local government pension scheme. But that consultation doesn't end until the 9th of November. And these changes come in in the fourth. So there's going to be a period when, you know, there just isn't a way of reconciling these these two contradictory regulations. And it's one of the reasons I was surprised that they brought it in this soon. I'm I'm just not sure they've thought it through.
0: Now, an exit payment isn't just one sum. There can be lots of different elements to it. How is the cap allocated between the different elements? Well, that
1: is one of the problems with the way the regulations are drafted. And it doesn't help you. So... If what you were doing was, let's say you you were faced with an employee being made redundant, they're entitled to a statutory redundancy payment that's enhanced because the employer perhaps doesn't observe the cap on a week's pay, and they've also got a pension strain payment, all the regulations tell you is that you must definitely pay the statutory redundancy payment in full. The employer has then got a pension strain payment to make and a contractual redundancy payment to make that add up together to more than £95,000. But the regulations don't tell you how to allocate between the two. Probably what the employer is going to have to think of is, well, if they don't pay the full redundancy payment, there's a breach of contract claim. Because the redundancy payment is probably contractual. And if the employer doesn't pay it, It doesn't seem to me that that affects the fact that it's a contractual entitlement that the employee has. And by the way, if a court orders you to pay a sum, then it's not counted within the cap. So the bizarre situation we might have is an employer feels that it can't pay the full contractual redundancy payment. And the employee then has to go to the county court, if it's more than £25,000, and get damages for breach of contract awarded, once the court has made the award, then the employer can pay it because it's no longer covered by the cap. But what they can't do is settle the case. They're not permitted to settle it.
0: It really is quite a bizarre situation. Are there any other exceptions? You've mentioned court judgments.
1: Yeah, court judgments aren't covered. There are things on death in service. There are exclusions for ill health retirement in the fire fire service, for example, so there are some some sensible exclusions. There's also a general principle that the Treasury can waive the requirement in certain circumstances. So government ministers can waive the cap when that's appropriate, and some local authority bodies or some public bodies will have the ability to, to operate their own waivers. Um, A full council, for example, can waive the cap in certain circumstances, but it can only do that in line with Treasury Directions, which haven't been published yet. So we don't know exactly what they're going to say. I mean, seriously, a year ago, I'd never heard of Treasury Directions. I didn't know there were any, and I seem to have been reading them constantly since March. But now we're waiting for a new set, this time applying to when you can waive the cap. So, for example, that might cover cases of undue hardship not entirely clear what undue hardship will mean, given that we're talking about £95,000. It might cover cases, well, it certainly will cover cases where there's a tribunal claim for discrimination, or health and safety breaches, or whistleblowing. If the council, for example, concludes that they are likely on the balance of probabilities to lose their case, then they can make an agreement to pay more than the £95,000 cap, but only if they think they're going to lose, which is quite a thing for a council to actually rule in in full public session.
0: Are there exceptions built in to the £95,000 cap for um, Dominic Cummings and the Prime Minister's other friends?
1: Only to the extent that Treasury Ministers are allowed to just waive the cap in any circumstances at all. So um, I I suspect that situations like that will crop up from time to time.
0: Now, you said the regulations come into force on, did you say the 4th or the 5th of November? 4th of November, that's the key date. What's the position with redundancies that are already in the pipeline?
1: Yeah, one of the many odd things about these regulations is there's no proper transitional provision. So normally, I think if you or I were drafting these regulations, we'd have something that says, well, they come into force on the 4th and they apply to any termination that takes place or is agreed from the 4th onwards. But that's not what they say. What they say is they come into force on the 4th. So on the 4th of November, it is illegal to make this payment. That is irrespective of whether on the 3rd of November, you reached the binding settlement agreement with an employee. If you did that, it's now
0: illegal for you to meet that binding settlement agreement. You can't. But the employee can sue you and then the court awards it and then you can pay it.
1: And that's absolutely right.
0: Yes. Did the government consult on these? Um, they did they did there was a consultation the consultation
1: lasted for more than a year they consulted in 2019 and we didn't get the result until July but you know of the draft regulations that they published only about half a dozen lines were changed there was no significant change made to the way the regulations were put at
0: all now if you were speaking to a public sector employer which is I know what you do most days yeah I um, do yes what, what one piece of advice would you give them need to do? I think the key thing for public sector
1: employers to remember is that these regulations are about what they're in, obliged, entitled to pay. They're not about what the employee is entitled to receive. So they need to remember that these regulations themselves haven't changed the entitlement of employees. They've changed their ability to meet that entitlement. So I don't think it makes a lot of sense for employers to try and play around with time scales, either bringing forward redundancies or delaying them. I think they just have to play a straight back, go through the processes that they're going through, but watch very carefully about when they're actually paying things. If they are bringing redundancies forward so that the redundancy happens on the 31st of October, for example, these regulations don't apply to the date of the exit, they apply to the date of the payment. So if the employee left on the 31st of October, but you didn't get round to processing the bank transfer until the 4th of November, then you fall fallen foul of the regulations. So they have to make sure that the payments are made at the right time, not just that the agreements are reached at the right
0: time. Darren Newman, what's the best way for somebody to find out about you and what you do?
1: Best way people can get in touch with that, either
0: follow me on Twitter, I'm at Daz Newman, or look at my website, which is DarrenNewman.org. And in fact, the best way to find Darren on Twitter is to look at my Twitter stream and look at the person who corrects me most often because <laughs> Dan's up there as a number one. Darren Newman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Leave a review and win a book. That was employment lawyer and commentator Darren Newman talking to us about the restriction of public sector exit payment regulations 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe at the Apple Podcast Store, search up Employment Law Matters and hit the subscribe button. We release episodes every single Tuesday, almost without fail, unless I'm exceptionally busy. And do leave a review, please, on the Apple Podcast Store. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk/podcastterms.